Welcome to the broadcast of Better Together, Democrats and Republicans Who Love America. Well, at long last, the Trump affidavit comes out. And doesn't say much. Let's see what experts say about it. The Hill, the, the Hill, the Trump Affidavit, Four Conclusions on Guilt and Evidence by Alan Dershowitz. For those who don't know Alan Dershowitz, he's a Harvard Law professor, typically goes after the most guilty criminals by choice to try to defend them, to prove that our justice system should give everybody a fair chance. I think he does it for the intellectual argument and stimulation to try to get people who are guilty off myself, but we'll see what he says. Reading the unredacted portions of the affidavit and appendices, which the FBI used to search Donald Trump's Mar-a-Lago residence, leads some, leads some initial conclusions. Leads to some initial conclusions. The affidavit contains sufficient factual basis for Magistrate Judge Reinhardt to find probable cause to issue a search warrant. The standard for issuing a search warrant is very low, and if any federal or magistrate judge would have issued a warrant based on the unredacted information contained in the affidavit. So Magistrate Judge Reinhardt should not be criticized for his decision to issue the warrant. The affidavit and the appendices seem exceptionally broad and virtually unlimited. It excludes rooms at the Mar-a-Lago complex used by third parties, guests, and members of the club, but extends to virtually every other area where boxes could be stored. The search warrant itself also seems to me to be overly broad and inconsistent with the Fourth Amendment's requirement of particularly describing the place to be searched and the person or things to be seized. The actual search itself may have even exceeded the terms of the warrant. If it is true, then it extended to Mr. Mrs. Trump's personal closet and other private areas, absent evidence that relevant material was stored there. More importantly, the unredacted portions of the affidavit do not seem to justify the decision of the Justice Department, as distinguished from the decision of the judge, to seek a warrant instead of pursuing the subpoena route. Subpoena route. There was probable cause for obtaining a search warrant early in the year, yet none was sought. And even when the search warrant was obtained, it was not executed for two days, thus suggesting the absence of real urgency. It is precisely because search warrants are so easy to obtain that Attorney General Merrick Garland correctly stated that the Justice Department should seek them only when there is no other reasonable option. The unredacted portions of the affidavit do not seem to meet Garland's own standard. Finally, the unredacted portions of the affidavit suggest there may be enough evidence to seek and obtain the indictment of former President Trump. Yes, yet once again, the standard for obtaining an indictment is very low. As a former judge of the New York Court of Appeals once said, a prosecutor can get a grand jury to indict a ham sandwich. 
It's precisely because it's so easy to obtain indictment that prosecutorial discretion is so important. In order to indict a former president who may well be future president candidate, two unofficial political legal standards must be met. The Richard Nixon standard, which means that the evidence of a serious crime must be so overwhelming that even members of the former president's own party would support an indictment. And the Hillary Clinton standard, which requires the Justice Department to distinguish President Trump's alleged wrongdoing from Hillary Clinton's handling of the State Department's emails that led to a 2016 FBI investigation of her conduct, meaning that Trump's conduct in this instance must be far more deserving of a criminal punishment than the Clinton's. As a pure matter of technicality, there probably was enough evidence to secure an indictment of Hillary Clinton. A grand jury would certainly have accepted a prosecutor's decision to do so, but the decision was made not to seek an indictment in her case. That was the correct decision back then, and it would be the correct decision now, too, if the evidence was no greater than the president and the redacted affidavit. It is possible that the redacted portions would provide evidence that satisfies the Nixon-Clinton standards, but the unredacted portions do not seem to do so. All of these conclusions are based on a quick preliminary review of the unredacted portions of the affidavit. My views may change depending on whether more information is forthcoming, but based on what I've read and my 50 years experience in reading similar documents, these are my conclusions. Alan Dershowitz, professor emeritus for Harvard Law, served on legal team representing President Trump, first Senate impeachment trial in 2020. Dershowitz is the author of numerous books, including his latest, The Price of Principle. He's also the host of Dershowitz on Rumble. The Dershow on Rumble. Um, follow him on Twitter. Okay. Well, I mean, a lot of it was redacted, so it is difficult to make clear sense of it. Michael Moore's joke cartoon on his rumble show or on his uh instagram was like an entire page all blacked out except one word catch up <laughs> you know, which basically doesn't tell us anything okay read fbi's unsealed affidavit justifying trump now i'm not going to read the whole affidavit but i'm going to tell you where you can find it So if you want to find the whole affidavit, I mean, you could Google it, but the article I have here is Read FBI's Unsealed Affidavit Justifying Trump Raid by Catherine Fung on 8-26-22 Politics from Newsweek. Let me see if there's new information here. I'm just going to read some quotes. While the DOJ said it would not oppose the unsealing of a cover page in the sealing order, it argued that the unsealing of the affidavit could jeopardize its investigation by revealing the scope and direction of the probe. Prosecutors argued the release would also hurt the ability of investigators' cooperation from witnesses, creating a chilling effect. And the FBI has already interviewed former White House counsel Pat Cipollone and former Deputy White House Counsel Patrick Philbin, among others, as part of its investigation. The search warrant obtained by FBI, which references possible violations of the Espionage Act, was unsealed last week. 
at the request of the Justice Department. However, the warrant does not include sensitive information that would be on the affidavit, including the reasons for prosecutors believe the FBI search would turn up evidence of a crime. Two senior government officials previously told Newsweek that information about classified documents Trump took from him. The White House was largely based on what a confidential source told authorities. So then there's the whole affidavit. I've read it all. I mean... Trump says there's nothing on nuclear in there. Um... Again, the the redacted part is so broadly redacted that we it is almost useless with the affidavit. Um, I would say it probably does have to do with, sure, a combination of his personal mementos, what he would consider, you know, conversations with Kim Jong Un and leaders. Um, but I also think new codes were a concern that they may not be turning up. I mean, we don't know, because again, the redacted version is so heavily redacted that it could or couldn't be in there. Trump is saying it wasn't nothing to do with nuclear, but we can't take his word for it because we can't cross-reference from the affidavit. What do I ultimately think? I still think it's all things aliens. I do. I think it's his whole reason for becoming president, and I think it's his whole reason for taking the documents. I think it's the biggest leverage tool he has. Um, yeah. I truly do. And it was also my true clue on that was because of his requirement um, in order to pass the first coronavirus relief package that all things UFO be released from the FBI to the to the Senate and House Intelligence Committees. Um, I, that's my biggest like hard evidence to show that that's his motive for becoming president in addition to potential business deals was all things alien. So I also think he's very fascinated by aliens and I don't think he really likes talking about it too much because a lot of his base could be hardcore Christians and that might be you know uh, splicing him from his base but I think that's the reason um, in addition to maybe what he deems important for um, his posterity but he didn't go about it the right way and I think the FBI had the right to go in there and seize them since they had tried to work with them and he was being difficult. Uh, you know, people want to make that like, oh, is the FBI going to come and seize everybody's stuff? No, I mean, Trump was very, very tricky. I don't think that they have a precedent of going and doing that. And just because it's unprecedented doesn't mean it's unwarranted, right? Trump was a wild card. And um, we still don't know what the unredacted sections say. So it's another one of those wah-wah, like not a lot of satisfaction coming out of this. Okay. So let's talk about, oh wait, federal judge orders relief of redacted. Oh, we already, well, that's already happened. So yeah. Just catch up on all this. Things are moving quickly. So, President Joe Biden's approval readings were through the roof. Um, 
we were wondering what would be the trigger for a higher approval rating. Uh, I don't think it was all the legislation he's been able to get passed. I think it was all about student loans. I was wondering if it was, and student loans seems to have jacked up the approval ratings. President Joe Biden's approval ratings are skyrocketing alternate Friday. David Badash. His approval rating the past month is skyrocketed, jumping six points after massive successes in getting legislative agenda. Legislative agenda passed at 44%. Biden's approval rating is now higher than the approval rating of Donald Trump, 41%. Barack Obama, 43%. Bill Clinton, 39%. Jimmy Carter, 43%. And Ronald Reagan, 41% at this point in the presidencies. The only presidents who had higher job approval ratings at this point were George Bush and George W.H. Bush both of whom were engaged in prosecuting wars in the Middle East, and Richard Nixon, 55%. Gerald Ford's was 48% of the point of his presidency, but an elected president coming in after Nixon registration, it's difficult to comparison to wait. All the approval ratings come in via Gallup President Job Approval Center and are based on current poll numbers and the time period for that poll. Gallup does not publish weekly presidential job numbers anymore. So the Biden figure is for August 1st through 23rd, 2022. Other presidential numbers are for the polls closest to that date and week number, around 79 to 84 weeks in office. Presidential Biden. President Biden has every reason to celebrate huge jump in recent months. He's become a historic president, battling an opposition party, fresh off an attempted coup, the cult-like leader facing possible criminal charges, on a variety of potentially unlawful acts, an unevenly divided Senate, a House with only a modest majority at all time a nearly unprecedented crisis, domestic, international, worldwide. Despite all that, Biden has racked up big wins on longtime Democratic goals, including tax corporations, ultra-wealthy signing into law the biggest climate change bill in history, making huge inroads in reducing drug prices, working to get on what is now a massive reduction in grass prices and stabilization of inflation, helping millions of veterans access care for toxin-based cancers, signing the first major gun control law in decades, maintaining and even reducing historically low unemployment while overseeing historic job and wage growth, signing the first major infrastructure bill in decades, getting America's first black woman justice confirmed, Supreme Court, removing all the leaders of al-Qaeda, strengthening and expanding NATO, while supporting Ukraine after Russia attacked the sovereign nation and more. Yesterday, which is not included in the latest Gallup poll period, President Biden announced 20 million Americans will see their student loan debt um, between $10,000 and $20,000 Pell Grants forgiven, despite GOP pushback. And thanks to White House Now, the offensive, instead of paying the defensive, it's proving to be another major win for Biden and the Democrats. I mean, he's done quite a lot, and he's had his approval ratings in the toilet the entire time, um, unjustly, by my party as well which is Democrat. And so, I mean, it was amazing that the trigger was the student loans. (laughs) Student loans. Okay. Well, at least we know it motivates people, not climate change, not social justice issues like putting the first black Supreme Court justice in. Nope. Student loans. Just student loans. You should have started out with student loans. (laughs) Okay. 
Who knew? Okay. How to get up to $20,000 in student debt forgiveness. And the Biden just announced. Okay. So. Ariette Sheffley from Business Insider. Biden canceled up to $20,000 in student debt for federal borrowers and Pell Grant recipients. While relief could be automatic for 8 million borrowers, others will have to apply. Here's where you need to know right now about getting the loan forgiveness. Wednesday was a big day for millions of federal student loan borrowers. borrowers and long-awaited relief is finally the way to balance their debt balances. But while forgiveness might be automatic for some... Many will still have to take action to take advantage of President Joe Biden's student debt cancellation. Biden and Educational Department announced that up to $20,000 in student loan forgiveness for Pell Grant recipients and other federal borrowers that do not receive Pell Grants will be eligible for up to ten grand in debt relief. Both of those groups must make under $125,000 a year to qualify. This announcement was coupled with Biden's fifth extension of the student loan payment pause through December 31st. The president affirmed... This is the final extension. Borrowers should anticipate restarting payments come January. There is an entire generation now saddled with unsustainable student loan debt in exchange for college degree, Biden said, making incredible progress, bringing relief to those that need it and fixing the student loan system. It works for working people. So it works for working people. But the department made it clear the loan forgiveness will not reach all borrowers in the same way. Here's what we know so far about getting relief and what we should do, what you should do next. Your annual, you can get your, you can determine a student loan forgiveness if you are making under 125 or 250 if married. Uh, you received a Pell Grant in college for made under 25, 125 a year. You could get up to 20000 in relief. Federal loans, not Pell, make under one twenty-five a year. You could get up to ten thousand in relief. Your loans would take out prior to June thirtieth, twenty twenty-two. While Federal Education Department will release more details in the process the coming weeks, here's what you should know right now: approximately eight million student loan borrowers could could be eligible to automatically receive relief because their income information is readily available to the department. These borrowers will likely be notified of their eligibility. If the department does have your income information, you'll have to apply. The department will launch a simple application in which borrowers can self-certify their income via the student government website. In terms of timing, the department said the application will be available before the student loan payment pause ends on December 31st. Okay. So let's talk about some critique about it. This one is Washington Examiner. If Biden's college loan amnesty is illegal, why can't it be stopped in court? Opinion by Con Carroll. Speaker Nancy Pelosi questions its legality. So did President Obama's Council of Economic Advisory Chairman. Conservatives uniformly says it, says it is illegal. So why is the challenge to President Biden's college loan amnesty unlikely to see the inside of a courtroom? One word, standing. 
Standing is the legal term for the body of law governing who can bring a legal claim to court in an inherently conservative doctrine designed to limit the judicial power of the federal government. Without a limit on who could assert legal claim, courts would become, in the words of the Justice Byron White, roving commissions assigned to pass judgment on the validity of the nation's laws. Nominally, the test for whether a person has standing to assert a claim in court is still governed by the 1992 case of Lujan versus Defenders of Wildlife. In that case, the Carter administration first listed some species in Egypt and Sri Lanka on the endangered species list, only to change their mind and delist those species. Defenders of the wildlife sued to keep those species on the list. Writing for the court, Justice Scalia enumerated a three-part test to determine if a litigant has sufficient standing to assert a claim in federal court. First, the plaintiff must show an injury in fact that is both actual or eminent, not conjectural or hypothetical. The injury must be specifically suffered by the plaintiff, not commonly suffered by the public. Secondly, the plaintiff must show causation meaning that the injury mentioned above is fairly traceable to the conduct and controversy. Finally, the plaintiff must be identified in likelihood of redress, meaning there must be existing an adequate remedy of the court could deliver to address the injury and caused by the conduct and controversy. In Lujan, two plaintiffs claimed to have visited Egypt and Sri Lanka, where they each saw crocodiles and elephants listed by the Carter administration as endangered. They also said that while they had no firm plans to return the return to these countries and see the animals right now, they both wanted to return someday. Scalia held that these someday intentions, without any description of concrete plans or indeed even any speculation of when the someday would be, does not support a finding of the fact of actual or imminent injury that our case requires. Other cases that have had taxpayers do not have some generalized standing to challenge federal spending, and neither do the members of Congress. Turning to Biden's college loan amnesty plan, one could definitely make a case that it will make inflation go up, although a court could find the worry speculative. Inflation also harms the public generally, so no one person would be able to credibly bring a claim. The best route might be for a current college student who is paying tuition now but sees his or her tuition go up next semester. The plaintiff would have to establish causation between school's tuition hike and Biden loan amnesty, which would be tough. The standing doctrine is a limitation on the judicial branch as presidents do more and more unilaterally through the executive action. This limited on limitation on judicial power necessarily increases the power of the president. Ultimately, if every if enough people are truly harmed by Biden's college loan amnesty, then the best remedy is the ballot box, not a courtroom. Okay, fair enough. Okay, so it's a legal explanation of why it's not going to court if it's technically illegal. So many different articles on the loans. We're going to get to them. Fox Business. Biden's student loan handout gives up to $20,000 to lawyers, doctors set to make hundreds of thousands of dollars. Thomas Katnachi. Biden's president's student loan handout will provide relief for recent law school medical school graduates who soon be earning hundreds of thousands of dollars. While lawyers and resident physicians will often make upwards of 20, 200 grand per year, their starting salaries out of school, many of them are to qualify for Biden's loan 
giveaway unveiled by Wednesday. Biden announced that Americans who earn less than 125 per year or 250 jointly are eligible to receive 10,000 in relief, while Pell Grant are able to receive 20,000. An entire generation is now saddled with unsustainable debt in exchange for an attempt at least at a college degree, Biden remarked on Wednesday. The burden is so heavy that even if you graduate, you may not have access to the middle class life as a college degree once provided. However, the $500 billion taxpayer-funded handout won't solve the long-term systematic issue of the overall student loan debt projected to return to its current level of $1.6 trillion within five years, a study from the Committee to Responsible Federal Budget concluded, will also benefit individuals on track to earn upper-class salaries. Simply eliminating a particular balance can be seen by some as an unfair advantage to those who have gone to college at the expense of those who have not. Rebecca Newman, an economics professor at University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, told Newsweek in May, forgiving student loans is unfair to students who have had to pay off their loans, unfair to students who have chosen less expensive community college options, unfair to taxpayers whose dollars are paying off the loans and who have no college education. And it will not rescue students from large amounts of debt. Dinah Furchot Rice, economics professor at George Washington University and former chief economist for Department of Labor, added. According to the American Medical Association, average first-year U.S. resident physician earns about $60,000 a year. Doctors begin residency immediately after graduating from medical school. Doctors will typically earn about 3% more than every additional year of their residency, which lasts between 3 to 7 years, depending on the specialty. By the end of their residency, doctors may earn up to $75,000 per year. However, doctors eventually earn hundreds of thousands of dollars per year, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics. Cardiologists, anesthesiologists, oral surgeons earn more than 318000 per year on average. In addition, the average salary of a law school grad is about 103000 According to the National Association for Law Placement, positions smaller firms and government agents pay between 55000 and 85000 Like doctors, though, lawyers eventually earn far more in starting salary at a school. The average lawyer earns 128000 per year, with lawyers at large firms or corporations making upwards of 200 per year, BLS data showed. It's actually quite less than I thought, actually. Not much. Well, you know, you can't pick and choose. Um, and this type of thing, fairness has to apply to all, whether you're a lawyer, a doctor, or, you know, um, curator at a museum. Um, yeah, I mean, he can't just sit there and pick and choose of what you should get if you're at what different job. You know, it has to be unilaterally applied. Okay. Who else is a critic? Of course, Marley T Marjorie Taylor Greene. Independent White House trolls Marjorie Taylor Greene for student loan criticism. She had 183000 in PPP loans repaid. John Marcus. The White House called out Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene on Thursday about the Georgia Republican criticized the Biden administration. Student loan debt plans as unfair despite getting more than 183000 federal loan forgiveness herself. Ms. Green has been a vocal critic of the president's plan to forgive up to 10000 in federal loan debt, dismissing it as unfair policy and partisan policy because Democrats need votes in November. True, we do. You're right, Marjorie. You're 100% right. We do. You got it, girl. For our government to just say, well, okay, your debt is completely forgiven. Obviously, they have an agenda for that. 
she said as a recent appearance in Newsmax. They need votes in November, you're right. So the timing is purely coincidence as well. It's completely unfair. I don't know if it's completely unfair, but you're absolutely right on the motive. Taxpayers all over the country, taxpayers that never took out a student loan, taxpayers pay their bills, maybe even never went to college, just hardworking people. They shouldn't have to pay off a great big student loan debt for some college student that piled up massive debt going to some Ivy League school, she added. On Thursday, the White House noted the tweet Ms. Green herself received 183504 in federal loan forgiveness as part of the pandemic-inspired paycheck protection program, which she used for funds for her construction company. <laughs> I love how people want to make these claims and they think people aren't going to do the homework on the background. White House Communications Director Kate Benningsville added the online pylon and Ms. Green posted a cheeky GIF gif on student walking down a hallway, tossing their papers in the air. We've scoured the White House Twitter feed and can't seem to find a tweet condemning the acts of political terrorism committed against Congresswoman Green this week, a spokesperson said. For Mrs. Green office, the independent, a likely referred to bogus SWAT calls directed against the Georgia legislature in recent weeks. It's a shame Joe Biden, a spokesperson in the media, continued to make MTG a target simply because she's not spoken against democratic policies. Ms. Green wasn't the only one in the White House signaled for seemingly clashing views on federal stone loan forgiveness. The Biden administration also know the Republican critics of the student loan plan, like Representatives Vern Buchanan, Mark Wayne Mullen, Kevin Hearn, each had over $1 million in PPP loans forgiven. Hypocrites. The PPP were part of the Trump administration's 2020 package of COVID stimulus bills, which passed with wide bipartisan to support. Studies suggest that most of their money is from program that went to business owners and high-earning households, constituencies that both lean Republicans rather than lower-income workers intended to beneficiaries of the initiative. Meanwhile, the GOP has rallied against Mr. Biden's comparatively more modest student loan forgiveness program, painting it as a giveaway to elitist Ivy League college graduates with high debt. In fact, the loans initiative is specifically targeted to those with lower incomes, of course, making below 125 a year, although analysis suggests the higher-earning Americans who hold more student loan debt on average will still be the main beneficiaries. From news to politics, travel to sport, culture to climate, the Independent has a host of newsletters to suit your... Oh, that's commercial. Yeah. Um, you know, you got your loans played, girl, so, I mean... <laughs> Okay. Why Californians with student loans will gain massively from forgiveness plan. LA Times. Teresa Watnab, Debbie Trong, Thursday. Sadia Khan, a recent graduate of UC Berkeley, was glued to her iPhone on Wednesday, refreshing Twitter of re- re- reading articles together, emerging details of President Biden's landmark student loan forgiveness plan. Why are you on Twitter for that? That's not a good source. When she learned that she was eligible for $10,000 in loan forgiveness, enough to wipe out her entire 6000 federal debt, financially struggling single mom was overcome with relief. We've been pinching pennies on everything, said Khan, 27, a legal studies major. As someone who doesn't have anybody to fall back on, this would be life-changing. Biden's plan 
won't go nearly as far to help Maria Williams, a 29-year-old assistant director at University of Redlands. She will qualify for up to 20 grand in loan forgiveness because she received a federal Pell Grant for low-income students when she attended Cal State San Bernardino, graduating 2015, but that will cover less than one-third of her $73,000 undergrad and grad debt, a burden to stressful that she teared up talking about it. It's a bittersweet feeling, she said. It gives you a little bit of relief. There's still a ways to go. I just don't see the finish line. Overall, the plan announced Wednesday would massively benefit California borrowers, who would be, by the sheer numbers, hold the nation's largest share of the $1.6 trillion in federal student loan debt, owed by 43 million current and former college and trade school students across the country. About 4 million Californians hold an average student loan debt of $37,783, according to Federal Reserve Bank of New York. But thanks to California generous financial aid program and relatively low tuition at public colleges and universities, average undergrad loan debt is the third lowest in the nation after Utah and New Mexico, according to the Institute for College Access and its Success. About 46% of Californians had average undergrad student loan debt of 21125 in 2019-2020. That compares with 30951 of 50% of New Yorkers with debt and 26271 for 50% of Texans, uh, 52% of Texans Institute estimated. About 92% of California borrowers will be eligible for new loan forgiveness, according to the Charlie Eaton, a UC Merced Associate Professor of Sociology and Student Loan Expert. expert. Under the plan, federal government will forgive up to 10000 for who earns less than 125 annually and up to 20000 for those who receive a Pell Grant for low-income students. Department of Education is proposing a rule to reduce the required minimum payment for undergrad loans from 10, 10% disposable income to 5% for those in particular repayment plan based on income. Under the proposal, the borrower's unpaid monthly interest would be covered. This is a historic day, Eaton said, and it's going to be having major repercussions for our economy and a transformative impact on millions of student loan borrowers' lives. Several studies showed that even pausing student loan payments during the pandemic, which Biden extended in 20, uh, December 31st, allowed borrowers to save money, take time to find better jobs, buy cars, even homes, and start families, Eaton said. The loan forgiveness plan could amplify those benefits, giving a boon to younger generations who have acquired just one-seventh of household wealth that the baby boomers had at the same stage in their lives in 1989, he said. Advocates for college affordability touted the debt cancellation as a major step toward forward, but many more said much needs to be done. Students can graduate without having to borrow money. We've been working on this issue for years, so it has to get at this level. It's just amazing, said Samantha Sang, legislative director and policy advisor for NextGen Policy, California-based nonprofit that advocates for progressive policies. More reforms need to happen so that we can at least get folks on the pathway to debt-free college and hopefully free college one day. But Tang said the, pal- the plans will do very little to eliminate racial wealth gaps for many borrowers who urge more changes of how students pay for college, including restructuring loan programs in the loan service industry. In 2015-2016, 21% of black graduates with bachelor's degree accumulated more than $50,000 in student loan debt compared with 10% of whites, 7% of Latinos, 6% of Asians, according to the California Student Aid Commission report. Black borrowers held an average of 52726 in student loan debt after graduating nearly 50% more than white peers. 
Manny Rodriguez, the Director of Policy and Advocacy in California for Institute of College Access and Success, an organization pushes to make higher education more affordable, said the state must focus on driving down college costs for students. Oftentimes, students at California Public College and university borrowers money to non-tuition expenses such as housing, food, and transportation. California colleges used to be more affordable. Eaton said one in eight college students had any federal loan in the 70s, but that began to change in the 90s when a recession hit and the state cut funding to higher education. Tuition levels rose and the federal government expanded to access student loans. Another spike in student loan debt followed 2008 recession, he said. In recent years, however, California's political educational leaders have boosted the state's financial aid programs, now the most generous in the nation. Cal Grant Program, for example, covers full tuition for about 600,000 students and is set to expand an additional 150,000 students in 2024 after Governor Gavin Newsom and the legislature widely widened eligibility by dropping age time out of the high, high school and other requirements. Wow, the Cal Grant used to be nothing. Now it's that much. Wow. Unlike student, Cal Grant used to be like a thousand dollars. It was like nothing. Whoa. Unlike student loans, grants had to be, do not have to be repaid. The fact that not all students understand is Mar- Marlene Garcia, executive director of California Student Aid Commission. She said all high school students will be required to fill out the federal form required to access financial aid, known as the Free Application for Federal Student Aid, beginning this year, that she said will help make grants even more accessible and reduce the need for student loans. An even more ambitious goal, though some leaders are taking steps to make college completely debt-free. The University of California, for example, is aiming to eliminate the need for loans by 2030 by providing more campus part-time jobs, increasing institutional financial aid set aside from tuition rece- revenue, and taking advantage of expanded state grant program known as Middle class scholarship of 2.0, uh, 2.0. The UC system has also officially endorsed the national movement to double the maximum Pell Grant. That's great. Now 68795 for uh, 2022-23. However, student loan debt continues to dog California borrowers, and for many, the Biden plan represents just a fraction of the money owed. Alex Thompson, a counselor at the L.A. Elementary School, took out more than 100000 of federal loans for a USC master's program in school counseling. After earning an undergrad degree in small liberal arts university, Thompson said she chose USC because of its prestige, hoping for a university that stood on a resume at a time where competition for counseling positions was high. Thompson was graduated from USC earlier this year. She said she was excited to learn that she could have had 10000 of her debt canceled, but she's resigning to a long road to paying off all her debt. I know I was attending a school that was more expensive than most and that the price I guess would pay would go to university like that, she said. Thompson also took out private loans during her undergrad career, kind of mentally prepared herself. I'm probably going to pay my loans for the majority of my life. Naomi Waters, a recent UC Riverside graduate in public policy in African-American studies, is saddled with $65,000 in federal loans. 7000 of that accrued interest. Her parents... Um, just a second, let's skip. Her parents, who work in real estate and public works, lost their home during the financial turmoil of the 2008 recession and had no college fund to support Waters and her two siblings, who were attending college about the same time. So Waters relied on loans, most of them taken out while she was attending Cal Poly Humboldt. She left before, there's a Cal Poly Humboldt? I didn't know that. 
She left before completing her program and navigated a confusing and circuitous path to degree through community college and finally UC Riverside, all the while amassing more student loan debt. She expects to qualify for $20,000 in student loan forgiveness, but it won't go far, especially since she wanted to attend law school, which she figures will add more than $150,000 to her student loan debt. It's great to set up a loan forgiveness program, but it's a drop in the bucket. Okay. There's a Kelb Holly Humboldt. No idea. Okay. Anything more about loans? So we can move on. So the migrants. How are the shipping containers doing in Yuma? Basically, I won't need to play the whole thing, but this is Associated Press. Migrants bypass AZ shipping container border wall. Maybe I'll do some CC. Um... The shipping containers put it, this is by Associated Press, um, Friday. Nearly 800 migrants cross right through a large gap where the Indian tribal land bypasses the border wall and containers. These individuals come to this area and what you see behind this is what you would know is the Trump wall. The state filled with five gaps, a border wall constructed but not completed during first former President Trump's tenure. The area on the right of me is also tribal land in Arizona. The tribes have said no wall will be built on our land, so there's a gap. Arizona Governor Doug Ducey closed 38, 20 feet of gaps like this with 130 shipping containers measuring 60 feet long. I love when the, the captions just kind of like drop off after <laughs> come on captions okay well okay so tribal land is a real issue you can't build on sovereign Indian land um, at the same time I still think the shipping containers are a helpful idea of corralling the big open gaps that could be filled, and then you can recruit your border patrol on the areas that can't be. Um, but yeah, obviously, the Native American land, you can't interfere with that. So I don't know how they're going to deal with that exactly. But I still think putting up a barrier is essentially important um, so that you can have your border control focused in targeted areas more efficiently. So... You know, if Texas wants to start that, probably better than continually busing migrants in New York and D.C. and continually complaining um, about the Biden administration, but actually doing it themselves. What I'm concerned about is that if it's just left to be this continued deluge, it's going to stir up a lot of white nationalists that are probably going to arm themselves, go down to the border and start shooting. I wouldn't put it past them, and that's a concern. Um, 
we didn't hear any really reaction from China to the most recent Blackburn visit. And then finally, a day later, a dollar short, we hear from China. Okay, chimes now. Uh, last Friday, U.S. must immediately stop all official interaction with Taiwan. China fumes over U.S. lawmakers' visit to Taipei. Well, you could fume, but you didn't threaten to show your plane down. You didn't, like, get your ships all out in the, you know, doing drills. So I don't know why Marsha Blackburn wasn't a big deal as Nancy Pelosi. <laughs> so kind of reactive there, presidency. Uh, China on Friday redacted strongly to U.S. lawmaker Marsha Blackburn visiting to Taiwan asked the American government immediately to stop all forms of official interaction with Taipei. It should be noted that the Republican senators on a visit to Taiwan from August 25th to 27th in response to media query, China's foreign ministry spokesperson said that the Marsha Blackburn's visit to Taiwan region seriously violates the One China Principle and the provisions of the Three China-U.S. Joint Communiques and goes against the U.S. commitment of maintaining only non-official ties with Taiwan region. There's only one China in the world, and Taiwan is an alienable part of China's territory. The government of the People's Republic of China is the sole legal government representing the whole of China. A spokesperson said. Spokesperson went on to add, we will not waver in opposition to Taiwan dependence, separatist activists, and uh, external interference. We urge the relevant U.S. politician to abide by one China principle and the three China joint U.S. communiques. Immediately stop all forms of official interactions with Taiwan. Immediately stop sending wrong signals to Taiwan independent separatist forces. Meanwhile, Marsha Blackburn yesterday said that China has been just waiting for an excuse to bully Taiwan. She arrived at Taipei late Thursday after visiting Fiji, Solomon Islands, and Papua New Guinea as part of the U.S. push to expand diplomatic footprint in the area, her office said in a statement. During the three days' visit, Blackburn was also due to meet with the head of Taiwan's National Security Council. Okay. You know, I mean, China can decide that... Taiwan is part of its territory, but several of our allied countries decide otherwise since the 70s. And we didn't consult China to sanction that independence or not. We just support burgeoning democracies. So I think that just falls on deaf ears. But interesting, the tone for the Republican visiting was quite less than Nancy. We don't know why that is. Okay. Let's see what else I want to talk about. A lot of this is all SF news. I think we'll have it devoted topic on that. This is state news. Ten minutes. Okay, we'll talk about... NBC Bay Area, California's governor rejects legal drug injection sites, Associated Press, Tuesday. California Governor Gavin Newsom vetoed a bill Monday that said he could have, that said, 
that he said could have brought a world of unintended consequences by allowing L.A., Oakland, San Francisco to set up sites where opioid users could legally inject drugs under supervision. The, the unlimited number of safe injection sites in this bill would authorize facilities which could exist in, well into the later part of this decade could induce a world of unintended consequences, Newsom said in vetoing the bill. While they could be helpful, he worried that if, if done without a strong plan, they could work against the purpose. Worsening drug consumption challenges in these areas is not a risk we can take. If it was one of the most watched and most controversial measures of this legislative season, proponents wanted to give people who already would use drugs a place to inject them while trained staff stand by to help if they suffer accidental overdose. The proposal came as a spike in overdose death amid a national opioid crisis, but opponents say the move in effect would have condoned the use of dangerous drugs. Newsom a Democrat had previously said there was he was open to the idea, but his decision comes as he faces increased national scrutiny as he's perceived as a possible presidential contender. Oh, no, no, no. Frequently denied any interest. Please, yes, deny that. You're not up for it, Gavin. The sites would have helped us address the explosion of overdose deaths that we're seeing in California and, frankly, throughout this country. State Senator Scott Weiner, a Democrat from San Francisco, who authorized... California legislation said as lawmakers sent the bill to Newsom early this month. But Senate GOP leader Scott Wilk said in the statement at the same time that the bill amounts to giving people free needles and a safe place to shoot up. Wilk and other Senate Republicans sent a letter to Newsom, Democrat, urging him to reject creating drug dens that they said could potentially subject local providers to federal charges, though U.S. officials said they are not considering allowing sites with appropriate guardrails. Allowing people to get higher than a kite on heroin and other dangerous drugs, then turning them loose afterwards onto the streets is just crazy, objected Republican Senator Brian Jones. Assembly Republican leader James Gallagher sent his own letter and saying that statement that the Democrats who supported the bill are actively promoting crime. The state Senate gave final approval to the bill on a 21-11 roll call over GOP opposition and wait and with eight Democrats not voting after the assembly advanced on June 42 to 29 vote. The first two publicly recognized overdose prevention sites in the U.S. opened in New York City in in December and have been credited with intervening more than 150 overdoses. Rhode Island approved testing similar centers for two years. More than two and a half times as many San Francisco died of accidental drug overdose in 2020. A record roughly 700 people died of COVID-19 that year. San Francisco Mayor Linda Breed said earlier she cited sparking overdose in recent Rates declaring an emergency in Tenderloin's neighborhood in December. Nationwide drug overdose deaths increased 28.5% to more than 100,000 during the 12-month period, ending in April 2021 over the same period a year earlier, according to U.S. Centers for Drug and Disease and Prevention, including about 10,000 Californians. The governing boards in each of the California jurisdictions have already asked to be included. It will remain up to them whether to go ahead to what extent Newsom signs the bill into law. The test programs will run until January 2028. Participants, the government would have split the cost of independent study and the effectiveness of the program and its impact on the community due by 2027. But opposition crossed the party lines. Critics said that sites would attract crime as users buy drugs need nearby or steal the prostitute steal or prostitute themselves to afford the drugs. The legislation 
would bar arresting or prosecuting anyone associated with its sites, including clients for drug-related crimes. Opponents highlight former Governor Jerry Brown's veto of a 2018 bill that would have allowed the sites in San Francisco. Enabling illegal and destructive drug use will never work, wrote Bowen. A Democrat. It said the proposal all carrot no stick because there was no requirement that the user undergo drug treatment. While there is no requirement, supporters contend that employers, employees at sites could help users get treatment while also helping to prevent the, sp the spread of HIV and hepatitis infections by providing clean needles. They could have drug testing kits to check for fentanyl or other contamination. Although there is no silver bullet on our overdose epidemic, there are proven strategy to reduce overdose deaths, to get people into treatment, to reduce syringe litter, and to provide people the option not to be using drugs in our public spaces, which is not healthy or appropriate for anyone involved. Wiener said during the Senate's final consideration. Supporters and opponents have promoted conflicting data on whether nearly 170 such sites in Australia, Canada, and Europe have been successful and whether they have encouraged nearby crime. This is disappointing. I think that would have been a good try. Um, so what does San Francisco think of this? San Francisco. Despite Newsom's veto, San Francisco might push ahead with supervised drug consumption sites. Mallory Monick. Governor Gavin Newsom vetoed a bill that would have allowed pilot programs where people could use drugs and the supervision of trained staff in San Francisco, Oakland, L.A. to blow up a long-fought battle to tackle the city's overdose crisis. In his veto letter, Newsom said the unlimited number of sites the legislation would have allowed could induce unintended consequences mentioning worse drug consumption challenges. He directed the Health and Human Service Secretary and the local officials to come back to him legislative with detailed detail plans for a truly limited pilot program. The most recent veto is set back for many San Francisco officials who pushed for this open these sites for years to curb overdose deaths, but have held off because federal law still prohibits them. State law doesn't provide prosecutions for medical providers running the sites, but San Francisco could still move forward with opening a site after City Attorney David Chu releases a statement following Newsom's veto that he said was support a nonprofit opening the site. To save lives, I fully support a nonprofit moving forward now with New York's model of overdose prevention programs, Chu said in a statement. In New York, a nonprofit that has been running un, has been running two unsanctioned sites since November without legal repercussions has seen thousands of visits and reversed 400 overdoses. Spokespeople for two San Francisco nonprofits that ran overdose prevention programs, Health Right 360 and AIDS Foundation, said Monday they are willing to run a site but need ICE location and funding, either from the city or as New York City, for private donors. The law would have allowed SF, Oakland, and the county and city of LA to host supervised drug consumption sites until January 2028. It would have shielded medical professionals who worked at such sites from criminal charges under any drug laws and prohibited for professional boards from revoking their licenses. Any site would be required to have a public input process, ensure security, create good neighbor policy, and commission a study of the impact. Political insiders speculated that Newsom's unspoken political ambitions to run for president in 2024, which he has denied, could have scared him off signing the bill because of the political perceptions nationally. Newsom has been running 
ads in Florida targeting another potential frontrunner, Florida's Republican governor Ron DeSantis, and set himself up as a fighter for Democratic values, fueling speculation. Senator Scott Weiner, a Democrat from San Francisco who wrote the bill, vowed in a statement Monday to keep the movement going despite Newsom's shoot down in the state law. Today's veto is tragic, Weiner said. Each year, the state legislation is delayed. More people die of drug overdoses, two per day in the San Francisco alone. Local advocates have rallied for these sites for years as the death toll from drug overdoses mounts. Since the start of 2020, more than 1,600 people in the San Francisco have died from overdoses. Supporters point to studies of sites to offer countries in the U.S. to make the case that the sites will save lives without increasing crime in the surrounding areas. But sites face back pushback from opponents who argue that enabling illicit drug use instead of focusing on offering or requiring treatment, cracking down on drug dealers and reducing supply. Advocates respond that people are already using drugs and dying so doing. And supervised consumption sites can connect people to treatment. Participants would get clean supplies at the sites but would bring their own drugs. In his web, in his veto letter, Newsom said he has long supported the cutting edge of harm reduction strategies, but said the unlimited number of sites allowed by the bill can induce a world of unintended consequences. It's possible that these sites would help improve the safety and health of our urban areas, but at the done without a strong plan, they could work against the purpose. Newsom's letter read... These unintended consequences in cities like L.A., San Francisco, Oakland cannot be taken lightly. Worsening drug consumption challenges in these areas is a risk we cannot take. Former Senator, former Governor Jerry Brown vetoed a similar bill in 2018. Newsom, a candidate for governor at the time, said that was open to his pilot program. He was open to a pilot program. Opponents feared the sites would become magnets for drug activity, and Republican leaders in the California legislature had already used them to veto the legislation. Glad to see the governor veto this. People struggling with addiction need help. Not a legal place to shoot up. Senate Republican leader Scott Wilk from Santa Clarita, Los Angeles County, said in a statement, I look forward to working with the governor to convince Democrats and legislature that a compassionate approach to addiction is better done through medical and mental health treatments. Supervised consumption site supporters dismissed the enabling narrative and argued the sites would help address resident complaints about public drug use. A review of 22 studies on overdose prevention sites found that the risk of death and improving access to care while not increasing crime or public nuisance to surrounding communities. There's no evidence that unintended consequences have existed in the 100-plus sites around the world, and there's a lot of evidence to show that they can do this safely in a way that saves lives. It's Assembly Member Matt Haney, another Democrat from San Francisco who co-authored this bill. With his veto, Newsom will face harsh criticism from locals in San Francisco where he was formerly mayor. Vika Elson, CEO of HealthRight360, who's in recovery for drug addiction, called Newsom's letter a bull like veto message. That was a very way of saying, I don't want this on my watch. She said the letter lacked specifics or evidence for his worries and that he's known for two years that the bill was coming, so he could have reached out earlier with concerns. Weiner said the state doesn't need additional studies or working groups to determine whether the safe consumption sites are effective, instead pointing to studies from sites around the world for three decades with no record of overdose deaths. 
Oakland's Mayor Libby Schaaf said the veto was incredibly disappointing, but she appreciates Newsom's direction to convene health care experts to, convent, to create a detailed pilot model. She would work to do so urgently as people's lives depend on it. San Francisco Mayor London Breed and San Francisco City Attorney office supported the bill. This is disappointing, Breed said in a statement, but we remain committed to building on the city's drug overdose in response to combat San Francisco street drug crisis, save lives, help connect more people to treatment and services. The city will continue to explore. We can push forward and innovative strategies with our city departments and community partners while we continue to conversations at the federal level. Breed said last year that she was determined to open a site and the Board of Supervisors even approved the purchase of a building on Geary Street that could host it. In New York City, funding for other harm reduction programs increased, which freed up private dollars from foundations to fund the overdose prevention site, said HealthCare Right 360 spokesperson Gary McCoy. San Francisco has not indicated yet whether they would do the same thing to allocate city funding or support any site. Laura Thomas, director of harm reduction policy with the AIDS Foundation, said her organization has been consulting with the health department about possible locations. For any site, she's even considered a mobile option. Unlike the governor, I'm determined to save lives however I can, so we'll keep moving forward, she said. I mean, I think it would go well to have a designated site um, for people who are in addiction issues or having addiction or want to use